welcome. Uh, welcome to the LSE. Welcome to the Marshall Institute and uh, welcome to uh, an hour of philosophical conversation. Uh, we're delighted to have you here. Uh, we'd rather have you uh, on campus in person, but we're nonetheless delighted to have you at digital rather than atomic um, LSE. Um, just a few uh, housekeeping points. Um, our session today will be uh, recorded. It's also being live streamed on uh, Facebook. Um, you will have the opportunity to ask our distinguished panelists um, questions. And if you uh, put your questions in the uh, Q&A box, I will go through them and make sure uh, I pick out um, uh, questions. Um, we're here today to talk about the privatized state. Uh, and we're very fortunate um, uh, to have uh, colleagues, Chiara Cordelli, whose book it is, and my colleague at the uh, LSE, uh, Kate uh, Vredenberg. Um, and they're going to be talking a little bit about what the age of privatization um, means for our institutions and for our um, um, political uh, outlooks. And they're going to touch on questions uh, in philanthropy, um, which is of particular interest of the Marshall um, Institute. So it's my great pleasure um, to welcome Chiara Cordelli. Um, if you don't already own a copy of your book, um, I recommend you uh, go immediately to buy a copy of her book. Um, uh, if you don't buy it, then read it. Um, and if you buy it and don't read it, you will have missed a great pleasure. So the format today is Chiara's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, her book. Um, she's going to then be in conversation with Kate. Um, and then we will use the last 20 or 25 minutes of the session uh, for them both to answer your questions. Um, so, Chiara, welcome to the LSE. Welcome to the Marsh Institute uh, and congratulations on your book. Well, thank you very much, Stefan, for this kind of introduction. And of course, thank you to the Marshall Institute to or for organizing this event and also to Kate for kindly agreeing to um, discuss the book uh, with me today. So when I started writing this book, I had two um, sort of main goals in mind. First, I wanted to provide a normative uh, or ethical, I would say, assessment uh, of what is, I think, an incredibly important institutional transformation that has changed the way government works in many liberal democracies. And here I'm referring to um, the privatization of governance. So since the about the 1980s, but depending on, on countries, one signature feature of what is uh, um, generally known as neoliberalism has been the government outsourcing of even ever more essential functions, right, to private actors, for example, from education to healthcare, but also prison management, military tasks, without mentioning, for example, the growth of the role of philanthropy in the funding of public goods, even in Europe, um, uh, which was, uh, um, you know, where philanthropy was generally perhaps limited to arts and culture. So what initially captured my attention about this phenomenon was perhaps what I would define as a quasi-paradoxical character, right? Because after all, historically speaking, the modern administrative state was born precisely to separate the public and the private. We may say re replacing, for example, patrimonial relationships that were typical of feudalism. Uh, with a system of, say, impartial, independent public offices. But today, the process of privatization could be seen as reversing this very logic, right? Generating a new fusion of public of privatized administration, so public administration and private action within the state itself. So the government increasingly acts through private actors, while it's the bureaucratic structure of the state itself that increasingly be, become marketized or privatized. In the US, for example, uh, uh, people have talked a lot about, about Trump trying to strip civil servants and office holders of longstanding tenure protection and to make the administration more like business-like. 
So I thought that an ethical assessment of privatization should capture precisely this quasi-paradoxical character, questioning in first instance whether privatization is compatible with the very reason for why we should have a, a democratic state in the first um, in the first instance. And I thought that this in turn necessitated, uh, you know, required answering some very, very old philosophical question concerning in premise the normative justification of the state itself, the authority of democracy, the nature of democratic legitimacy and representation, as well as the special character, if any, of public office holding. And so the second animating goal of this book was precisely to try to shed some new light on these very old um, philosophical questions. Let me ask, what does it mean to even provide an ethical assessment of privatization? After all, isn't privatization just a merely technocratic right, problem? And in fact, I think this is how it is generally treated. The question that is often asked right, is whether privatizing this or that particular function uh, comes with certain benefits, for example, increased efficiency or, if, or increased quality of services. And I think this outcomes-oriented approach, it's perfectly understandable to some extent, but also I think very reductive for it neglects to ask what I think is a much more like fundamental question, which is if government uh, increasingly acts through private agents, can these agents act with the legitimacy the government's purpose to have? And reversibly, can a government that is more and more looking like a network of private actors retain, you know, the legitimacy that again it purports to uh, to have? So, it's in response to this question in the book, I really try to demonstrate how the choice of a government to systematically administer the public through the private compromises is the legitimacy of the democratic state itself. So to put it in a nutshell, we could say that privatization is a state-driven process of state delegitimation. And of course, this does not mean, and this is very important, that the choice to privatize is always wrong. However, since I think legitimacy is a value that is particularly fundamental, I think often there are very strong reasons for limiting privatization, even when privatizing would be the most efficient and perhaps even the most distributively just, say, action to take. So in what sense, uh, and here the central question of the book, in what sense can we say that privatization delegitimizes the democratic state? And I think here, of course, we cannot answer this question without an account of why we need a democratic state in the first place. In my view here, following a long-standing Kantian Republican train of thought is that the existence of the democratic state, put very briefly, is justified by the fact that the state is the only entity that can, in principle, secure the condition of justice, while at the same time avoiding private domination. That is to say, it can secure justice through institutions that do not subject any citizens to the purely private and unilateral legislative will of another. But in order to achieve this dual end, a democratic stating state, I think, um, including its system of public administration, must be constituted in a very particular way. And more precisely, all exercises of discretion that, for example, determine right, the boundaries of citizens' rights and duties, or the distribution of the resources necessary for their liberty and, and equality, all these decisions must satisfy certain normative conditions at a very minimum and quite obviously, right? Um, this decision must be democratically authorized in a valid way and they must be carried out in a genuinely representative capacity. That is to say, in the name of all of us, of the citizens. So one important um, part of the book 
here is precisely dedicated, right, to show how privatization ends up compromising both the authorization and the representation condition for the legitimate exercise of political discretion, thereby reproducing within the state itself that very problem of domination that the state was meant to solve to begin with. And here again is the sort of paradoxical character I started, I started with. So why does this happen? Well, first privatization, especially when widespread, undermines the minimal precondition of democratic self-government, including the capacity of citizens to exercise democratic directive control over public affairs, their ability to retain a necessary level of civic vigilance, and also a fair distribution of opportunity for political influence within society. Yet, I further argue in the book, in a democracy, I think that government does not have the right to make political choices which foreseeably and avoidably undermine this precondition of democratic self-governments. So it follows that in the context, in contexts where privatization is already widespread, uh, I think the US is one of these cases. I leave to you the judgment whether the UK meets the standards. But in this context, further attempts to privatize should often be considered as lacking valid democratic authorization. And this in turn means that citizens are often subject to exercises of discretion by private actors, which count as purely private and unilateral, because from a normative perspective, if my argument is correct, they ought to be regarded as lacking a valid democratic authorization. And second, I also argue here, I don't, I can't provide the details, but that even when private actors act under valid democratic authorization, they often fail to act in a generally representative capacity because some of their distinctive features qua private, private actors make it the case that they often act on reasons that lack the status of valid reasons for action from the perspective of a democratic government. So um, the result, and here I am here concluding, is that by compromising both an authorization and a representation condition, right, privatization again reproduces within the state itself the problem of domination that it was meant to solve to begin with. And so one implication I draw from this analysis among others is that there should be constitutional limits to privatization. And this, uh, again, does not mean that all outsourcing should be prohibited, but I think at least there are two kinds of outsourcing that are particularly problematic. Those which unavoidably delegate significant discretion to private parties, and is it generally, for example, in the case of prisons, but also those who delegate services that should visibly represent the face of the state to the citizens, including, for example, social services and healthcare services. And finally, here it's an important point, it doesn't simply matter the quality of the functions privatized, but also the scope of privatization after all, because we should think about right how privatization also in the aggregate undermines the capacity for democratic self-rules and though, the ability of democratic institutions to, um, to survive. Thank you. Thank you, Chiara. Um, um, brilliantly succinct um, and incredibly interesting to hear, to hear how many, I mean, it was Iris Murdoch, I think, who said that all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. Um, how many how many of the kind of deeply historical uh, principles this apparently modern question um, um, raises. So now I'm delighted to introduce my colleague from the LSE, uh, an expert on uh, uh, ethics and, uh, and technology, uh, uh, joined the uh, Department of uh, Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method only, I think, a year ago. So welcome, welcome, Kate. Um, and you're going to discuss with Chiara some of these ideas. 
Yeah, so I, I kind of won't go over the book since Kiara did that so so nicely, but I can't help but starting out with a few words of praise for it. Um, so I think both the, the book is remarkable for the kind of depth and originality of its philosophical analysis. So it tackles this really kind of hard and um, underexplored problem in political philosophy raised by administrative agencies. So, you know, we're kind of used to thinking about democracies and the kind of ways to set up democracies to be responsive to citizens' wills and to represent them. But of course, as Kiara notes, a huge part of our governments, in fact, are not run by directly elected representative officials. And so by kind of looking at these agencies and understanding, drawing out these three conditions she talked about for what would make them legitimate, we could kind of use those conditions to understand not only what makes administrative agencies themselves legitimate, but how to kind of look at this problem of privatization and consider where it goes wrong. Um, and I think also the kind of um, empirical groundedness of the, of the book is really um, a remarkable achievement. So I thought I would start us out thinking about the scope of the argument as well as the values that are at play and their relative weights. So in particular, the arguments are meant to apply to any exercises of what Kiara calls legislative and regulatory power that changes the rights and duties of individuals. And as she said, kind of especially near the end, the arguments kind of seem to give priority to legitimacy over other values that we might want to promote, certainly efficiency and perhaps also justice. And this is one of the kind of remarkable and interesting angles of the book that people have often analyzed the problem of privatization in terms of kind of questions of justice and are private actors really the best kind of actors to deliver justice. And Kiara kind of reorients us to think this is actually a, a problem of power and the kind of, you know, the conditions under which power is exercised over agents. So I thought I would start us off thinking about the scope of the kinds of agents and exercises of power that are in the core of the argument. So as I said, the arguments apply to these kind of exercises of legislative and regulatory power that changes the rights and duties of individuals. But, you know, first, just open ended question, what kinds of actions paradigmatically fall under this umbrella of legislative power? So as Kiara discusses in the book, just changing the rights and duties of individuals is kind of very broad. So say that I give you the lockdown gift of a puppy, you know, I thereby change your rights and duties. You've now got to care for the puppy but I haven't thereby exercised kind of illegitimate power over you because it's kind of compatible with your free and rational agency, you could consent to it. So policymaking by private and public actors most clearly falls under such concerning exercises of power since policies are meant to change these patterns of rights and duties. But, you know, first question, are there any kinds of policies, you know, maybe you could think of those somewhat minor policies maybe that might escape these concerns about legitimacy or maybe to put the question another way, are there kinds of policies as you talked about significant discretion or effects we should be particularly concerned about? So contrast say a policy about the time of day that prisoners are allowed to make phone calls versus a more serious policy of the prices at which they can make phone calls that might have really prohibitive effects on their ability to do so. And, you know, second kind of question, should we also be concerned about private discretion in the application of policies, even if an agency, be it public or private, has kind of specified a policy from the legislator, do we also need to be concerned about how agents are interpreting and implementing those policies? Thank you, Kate, uh, for the kind words and also for this very important question. Um, uh, which I would um, answer, I mean, in brief, and then I'm going to um, unpack my answer, is that, yes, what matters is, bo is both the kind of autonomy in the exercise of discretions that parties get to enjoy, right, in, in, in making decisions, and um, but also the content of the decision. So deciding whether... Um, 
you know, um, garbage should be uh, collected in yellow or blue bag, or perhaps what even what time prisoners could make the call, although the second is perhaps more important than the first. But these we might think are uh, indifferent, what in the book I call indifferent exercise of discretion, not because they might be uh, purely executive in the sense that directly following from higher rules, they might be autonomously in part exercised, but their content is such that does not raise important question of freedom, uh, the determination of the scope of rights and duties, uh, or question of, you know, minimal distributive justice. So, uh, and that's why they are indifferent. The other aspect concern here instead how autonomous an exercise of discretion here is. And here I make the distinction between regulatory right and merely ex executive. There could be exercises of discretion that are very important. For example, say, you know, uh, deciding exactly how to inflict a particular kind of punishment. But if we lived in a world where as an agent, I could exercise no autonomy at all in deciding right how punishment should be inflicted, then democratic authorization at the very top level of rules would be a sufficient condition of legitimacy. You could see my exercise of discretion as a prison guard simply as if the state was right moving my arms and but that's not how things uh, work, right? There is always some autonomy in the case of prisons. This is something I address in the book, even more so because of the particular kind of environment that a, a prison um, is. And so at that point, the exercise of discretion becomes really what I would call an exercise of political power rather than a publicly or, or an exercise of public power rather than a publicly authorized exercise of private power, which would be, as I say, selling alcohol in a bar or, uh, you know, deciding to sell or not your house. In this case, these are decisions that matters and selling a house may even change your right. Now you have a house that before you didn't have, you have a right to enter it that before you didn't have. But in this case, my action is a publicly authorized exercise of private power because I'm simply like following a background of rules, in this case, property and contract law that determines right, how rights can be transferred. Where the exercises of public powers, which are the one I think privatization uh, involves, are decisions that contribute to setting the very background rules against which we act. So say a medical organization may set through categorization, deciding priorities, et cetera, et cetera, may end up formulating allocative policies that effectively determine who can claim an entitlement to what. And that's the kind of discretion they hear really, really um, matters. And I think it's often delegated to private actors. Yeah, that's helpful. And it kind of ties in with a, a nice argumentative thread of the, the book that you brought out, which is that, and actually, I'm curious, uh, kind of clarificatory question for you, too. It's not that you think that for any individual exercise of political power, it's not that you know an individual private agent uh, should not kind of exercise power politically in that way. It's the kind of aggregate of causal effects that lead to the erosion of the legitimacy of the state. But I was I was kind of curious because in the book you argue against these kind of at various points views upon which, you know, punishment just say isn't the kind of thing that ought to be done by private actors. It's the kind of thing that only uh, a public actor should do. And also, as you stress in the book, there are these, you know, there are, and, and accept the view that justice is the sort of thing that ought to be delivered by private actors. So it seems that there were these two threads, the sort of aggregate argument, and then the kind of lacking a standing, the right kind of standing in virtue of not being a public agent. And I was curious whether, uh, you thought, you know, both of those are kind of, you know, independent and maybe uh, individually sufficient to ground the arguments against privatization and how they interact as well. 
Yeah, so I, I think you captured the, the ideas perfectly right, right? There is one problem that is aggregative. And in particular, here, I think it's interesting, I think of the capacity for collective self-rule in a democracy. In the same way, we should think about the atmosphere, right? An indivisible public good. We all have an equal claim to enjoy and from which we all benefit. So now think about climate change, right? I might emit something and that particular emission taken by itself is not harmful or problematic in any way. But when emissions start to aggregate, there is a point at which the public good gets so corroded that we lose the right to emit any longer, right? In the case of climate change, we know why. In the case of privatization, I make the case that the aggregate effects of, of, of privatization up to a point because of a set of, of reasons that I mentioned in the introduction, including the fact that they compromise civic vigilance, the distribution of opportunity for political influence in societies, but they undermine that collective indivisible public good to the extent that uh, we can see further decision of pri to privatize as an abdication of the very right to democratic self-rule. So, this is an argument insofar as, and here, right, the, the, the book also defends this other claim, insofar as I think a democratic people does not have the right to abdicate their right to um, democratic self-rule, which is a controversial position, but I try to defend that. Uh, insofar as that the case, this grounds a very strong, I think, reasons of legitimacy to set constitutional limits to the aggregate level of privatization. But leaving all these aside, right, there are also standalone concerns with privatization that have to do with the standing of private actors beyond the aggregated effects. So, and this relates to what I was saying earlier, right? There are certain exercises of power, like when I decide eligibility criteria for welfare benefits and exercise discretion in that way, that unlike selling alcohol in a bar, should be made in a representative capacity. Those decisions should be made in the name of all of us. And in the book, I try to develop a hopefully original philosophical account of what it takes to act in the name right, of, of, of all. Um, so if, if it's true and correct that private actors lack the standing then to exercise the power in our name, then that grounds important reasons to limit privatization regardless and beyond of its aggregated effects. So that's the way I've thought about the structure of limits and uh, um, you know, um, the first kind of reasoning is more insensitive perhaps to the quality of delegated functions, whereas the second is very focused on the quality of the sort of delegation. Yeah, and picking up on this thread on limits, it kind of, you know, allows you to make a potentially very strong argument in favor of the, you know, priority of legitimacy over other values like efficiency and justice. So I wanted to turn to that now in the context of philanthropy, the, the topic of this institute. So uh, there are two kind of chapters that I wanted to put in dialogue with each other because I thought that there seemed to be some tension between their arguments. So in chapter nine, as you already outlined in the introduction, you argue for a kind of constitutional prohibition on privatization. But at the same time in chapter five, you argue that uh, because, and, and this is really, I think, interesting and compelling to me, uh, the kind of rich of a country have some duties of reparative justice to give because they're either complicit in a kind of injustice that benefits them, or they, you know, even if they don't benefit, they're kind of merely complicit just by participating in the society. So they have a kind of duty to repair, uh, you know, the fabric and increase justice by giving to, say, you know, the third sector in order to provide the kind of basic goods like education that citizens are owed to develop their rational autonomy. But of course, as you argue elsewhere in the book, 
you know, the, the kind of problem with using philanthropy to promote justice is that doing so undermines the kind of power of the state, right? It's not the state delivering the goods of justice, it's private actors. And so you, you know, these problems that you discuss are raised, like the problem of a lack of kind of civic vigilance, citizens get used to, you know, private um, actors delivering these goods of justice rather than the state. So I was curious how you were seeing the kind of, you know, on the one hand, the the ideal case uh, constitution with this kind of prohibition on too much privatization with the kind of, you know, call them near term duties of individual rich actors to engage in actions of reparative justice. Great. So I think as I thought about it, it's um, there is these issues in po political philosophy that I always talk about, about how ideal political philosopher should be in it, you know, for a real world, real meaning the world as it is now or ideal in the sense we should think about principle for a utopian world. So um, the, the, the second part of the book in this respect is, is divided in what I think are two stages, right, of reason. So one is like, what should private actors do within an already privatized state? What are their duties taking the world as it is now? And here it's where right, the part on philanthropy comes in. And I'll say as in a second why I think they have a duty of reparative justice. Um, but, and the other part is what should we do to exit the privatized state, given the fact that if my argument is correct, we have a fundamental duty of justice to exit the privatized state. And so the constitutional limits is one part. Then there is also a positive part about how we should think about making public institution less alienating and less dominating. But, you know, that's the exit part. And, and the first one is more like the non-ideal, right? What we should do given the fact that the state is already privatized. So here, it really, for me, my disagreement, I mean, it's not even a disagreement, is that I think a lot of literature on philanthropy and also a lot of public talk on philanthropy, I was on Twitter um, reading like, right, I think Poulter, the new Twitter philanthropist arguing, you know, government uh, is not trustworthy and now even NGOs are not trustworthy because there are and they um, are too costly bureaucratically speaking so we should go even a step further and now you know try to randomize philanthropy and endorse twitter philanthropy etc etc so I'm not commenting right now on the benefits of twitter philanthropy as such but the problem is that all the talk of philanthropy assumes a fair prop distribution of property in the background, because it's only under the assumption that what I have in my pocket is entirely mine, that I can claim that I have the right to decide entirely where that thing that is in my pocket goes. If I think about what I have in my pocket as something that it's a, say, a credit and I owe a debt, then debtors cannot be chooser, right? So I cannot therefore exercise any discretion in deciding where that things goes because it's not really mine. So I have just to return in a way that say repair a harm that I am complicit for or that I'm liable for even if I, ca I cannot be blamed for maybe because it wasn't my intention to cause the harm. So my first uh, point there with philanthropy is really to try to change this perspective by thinking, well, once we uh, understand that the background distribution of property is not fully just at least, not to mention that it could be extremely unjust, then the role of the philanthropy in society, right, becomes the role of someone that um, should exercise the philanthropic power to repair social damage that has been done, including, for example, by processes of increasing uh, privatization. I think there are, and I'm happy to talk about more later if someone is interested, there are many arguments here for why we should think 
of the very wealthy as, as, as having this duty of reparation, even if they might have never intended to harm anyone. Um, but uh, I also, uh, one last thing I would say is that because um, however philanthropy, it's always a non-ideal way of securing justice in the sense that it consists in making other people's dependent on a private person's discretionary will. So philanthropy is inherently dominating in, in this respect. Therefore, these duties cannot be a conclusive duty, a perfect duty of justice. It's provisional, it's morally required, but morally suspect, right? It, there is always like a contradiction within the duty itself. Yeah, and I think, I mean, part of the, part of the moral, morally suspect maybe nature of it is, I might think, you know, even if I discharge this duty of repair, it's kind of, you know, one, one hopes the facts of the world line up that in so doing, I, um, you know, thereby provide citizens with the sort of, you know, powers and abilities to agitate to make their state more legitimate and to exit, as you say, this condition of, uh, you know, kind of living under a less than perfectly illegitimate state. But of course, you know, it, it could well happen that philanthropy philanthropists, you know, keep exercising this duty, and yet we end up in a condition where we don't exit the kind of state of, you know, being less than perfectly legitimate because either because, you know, for the kind of reasons that you give in the book that people, you know, are not seeing their government still as the primary kind of, um, you know, site of justice, say, and, you know, in, in this chapter in the book, you bring in some other kind of solutions like, you know, education and maybe targeting a kind of civic ethos. But I'm curious whether you think how you might weigh the kind of, you know, the repaired, the duty of reparative justice that, say, the rich have in virtue of holding property, you know, uh, illegitimately or unfairly with a kind of more long-term duty to support the legitimacy of their institutions, maybe by not engaging in philanthropy or, you know, uh, engaging in, um, I don't know, some, some kind of political activity that doesn't kind of immediately benefit their fellow citizens. So first of all, I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. And in a certain way, actually, one way of really honoring the contradictory nature of the philanthropic duty, right? The fact that I should give, but giving is a form of domination. And so it's um, in, in some within some context, not always, you know, I think there is a, in an ideal society, there would be plenty of space for philanthropy, for the arts and culture and other things, but, but, but I'm talking about a specific context. So, um, so I think both, right, honoring this contradiction would be in part orient giving also to advocacy to change institution. And one thing I think is important, and in my view, I, I was reading also the giving pledge and, and recently uh, uh, again. And one thing philanthropists rarely do is to think about the, the public power of their rhetoric when that accompanies their giving, right? So there is a difference in saying, say, um, you know, I'm, he I'm rich, uh, not all the wealth I have is necessarily rightfully mine, but I think the situation is, you know, it's there is still something I can do to um, uh, to minimize the harm that, say, society imposes on, on on certain individuals right now. But I am conscious of my second best and morally suspect status. And another thing is to say, well, I I. I was so lucky to have all this wealth. Uh, and now that I have it, I, I think I should go, should give it back to society as if it was a form of sort of virtuous reciprocity. So philanthropists can accompany their donation with different kinds of rhetorics, 
And I think some are much more, are much better, better than others. But I agree with you. It, there is always, again, this is part of the overall contradiction, contradiction of the situation. The right, the risk is that the more philanthropy does, the more excuse government has to withdraw even further. And so then um, I, I think that that's why it is important to at the same time, right, reinforce public advocacy and use a certain kind of rhetoric that is institution supporting public institutions rather than further undermine citizen trust in them. So that's, I think, the best one one can do. Should we move to audience questions? Do we have time for one more? Let's 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 pick up some some other questions. Um, but I definitely want to hold you to that thought, Kate. So before we conclude, I want to hear uh, uh, certainly one more thing from you. Um, uh, so thank you uh, both. Um, we have a, a whole bunch of questions coming in, which I will go through in a minute. Um, I just want to start with a with a with a challenge, Chiara. Um, if it if it were the case that privatization um, and and philanthropy could drive up democratic legitimacy through some process of what your colleague former colleague Rob Reich would call discovery, okay, um, would that change your view at a kind of principled level? So, for example, there's a bunch of stuff that we don't yet know. What its, what its genuine effects might be, not at the level of efficiency, but at the level of legitimacy. Technology being an obvious example, okay? Uh, or we don't yet know what its, what its effect might have on the legitimacy of climate interventions, for example, and those kind of radically democratized um, uh, agency. Would that change your view or would that not change your view? So first of all, uh, I would need to know comparatively why, because um, uh, Rob, uh, who I know well and, and whose work on philanthropy I admire, I think in the book, in a certain way, um, maybe in my view, perhaps excessively emphasized the advantages of philanthropic in scaling up like this um, okay. discovery. Uh, purposes for because historically I think I mean think about the massive building of railroads I mean in the U.S. like giant projects that required for the time uh, extremely complex technological um, and those were um, you know publicly uh, funded and directed so I'm not sure first of all that uh, philanthropy is always so necessary for that purpose as in principle, as, uh, as some, people, uh, some people argue. Um, I guess it would change, um, you know, my, uh, uh, my view in the sense that um, uh, I think if, if it turns out that philanthropic giving was the truly unique and only necessary means to achieve certain ends that we might think of necessary in terms of social justice. And I think about, uh, I don't know, environmental also. Um, well, I was thinking of vac vaccine, vaccines is a perfect example. If privatization were, the, were, the, were the, 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 the means by which, as it were, every citizen on the planet were vaccinated, okay, would that change its legitimacy claim? Well, I think it would it would uh, um, change the claim in terms of justice that would be extremely strong in a situation of emergency. And I say this in the book, there might be emergencies that are always strange situation to think through because they always uh, present us with reasons that await everyone, everything else. So in the case of the vaccine, there will be definitely strong reasons of, of justice, right, of well-being, of to 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 do that in the um, in the absence of any other public alternatives. However, I think that would not cancel the problem of legitimacy. The fact that, say, this is an example that I think is always illuminating, like I'm a benevolent dictator, I do great things, I secure the condition of social justice and material well-being very well, um, that might be one good reason to have me, but doesn't make me legitimate in any yeah. way. So that's the problem, right? That, that would be reproduced. And, I, and I, I very much like the fact that you bracket out 
the usual claims for these things around efficiency and so on. So there's a ton of questions coming in. Um, the first one is from, uh, is from an NSE colleague, Jonathan Roberts, who wants to know whether all private, all privatization is alike in the sense that when, um, um, uh, when um, uh, non-standard organizations uh, pick, up, pick up work from the state, as it were, um, uh, would you, voluntary or non-profit organizations, which are private, Okay, but considered to be representative of the public sphere um, uh, or of the community. Do you distinguish between government delegating to community organizations and government delegating to profit-making companies? Yeah, so that I, I think it's a very important question and the book tries to provide actually more or less explicitly because some of the things are not perhaps so laid out, laid out as clearly as... Um, as I wish, but some of the arguments of the book apply to no profit as well. In particular, I want to mention two. One is an argument about the, the, what Susan Mettler also calls a political science, the submerged state. So uh, throughout sourcing, at some point, the face of the state disappears behind you know, the face of, of private actors. This is something that has been also empirically uh, confirmed by recent analysis during the Obama presidency, for example, in the US, where people were saying, hands off from my Medicare. And it's like, well, but Medicare, it's like a government problem. So, so the government cannot uh, right, withdraw itself from Medicaid. But the problem is that because of the way indirectly to private actors often, um, you know, also healthcare assistance is provided, citizens do not recognize the government as the main provider and they become disaffectionate, et cetera, et cetera. So that argument is a problem also for outsourcing to no profit, as it is, I think, an argument from representation. So in my account of representation, I argue that representation in order for me to act in a representative capacity is not sufficient that I comply with my contract or that I do what my mandate requires me to do. I also have to do it for reasons that are acceptable from the point of view of the democratic state, right? Of, 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 of the agent that gave the mandate. And so one problem with private actors is that they need necessarily to also act for goals. Profit is one, but religious charity is another non-public okay. comprehensive goal, right? That undermines the representative capacity. So this argument applies to no profit, but of course, I think um, privatization to profit organization raises additional issues, including the fact that they have a lot more of resources to spend um, within the public sphere. So Subi Barakat uh, raises a question that's kind of linked, I suspect, if I may paraphrase the question, about whether other, other forms, uh, uh, the, the, there are other things which as it were, hollow out democratic legitimacy, uh, which might not necessarily be uh, on our screen and volunteering uh, is the example that Subi gives. So you mean volunteering at a personal level? I think uh, um, it's, it's uh, completely, um, you know, fine in my, in my account. However, insofar as, um, uh, you know, I mean, a form of volunteering can be regarded as philanthropy. And so in that respect, my, the problems I have with philanthropy partly would uh, um, would also extend to philanthropy through different kind of means, right? Material resources, cultural capital, volunteering, et cetera, et cetera. And so that argument would, would uh, apply. Um, um, but I want here to emphasize one thing, that the book is not against voluntaristic civil society. If anything, in fact, in one chapter of the book, I argue that the privatized state also, the problem is they colonizes civil society, it makes civil society an arm of the state, therefore threatening 
precisely a more, if you want to romanticize it, a more Tocquevillian kind of civil society, right? The voluntary association, the sort of the bullying uh, alone kind of examples that Robert Patman mentioned in his book. And I think that society would have much more space and reason to exist in a society that didn't um, feature the privatized state. Okay, okay. So Mudit Jane has a question about public-private partnerships and whether that kind of um, uh, conflation of state and private capital and state and private action um, uh, where it has been manifestly successful. I mean, I know that there are lots of cases where it's not clear whether it's been successful and there are all kinds of arguments about, uh, about uh, how it's been, it's been, as it were, pure, poorly orchestrated, but whether that also is, as it were, a, a counter example. I hope I've expressed Muddit's question correctly. Absolutely. So um, the, my view would be, First of all, again, the general purpose of the book is to some extent move away from talk about success as it is often understood, right? Because we often think about success in terms of outcomes. Now, efficiency, uh, flexibility, innovation, uh, um, quality of services. Now, citizens want their taxes to be spent not only well, but also fairly. So outcomes matter and matter a lot. I want to make that clear. It's not that they do not matter at all. But that approach or quest of success, again, does not capture these very fundamental issues about legitimacy. And so the public-private partnership, my answer, in, in this way, success should be understood differently, right? Would, we would need to ask, what kind of discretion do private actors in the public-private partnership unavoidably retain? And then might in part depend on the function at stake, but not, so not, public, not all public-private partnership may be exactly the same. Um, and the second then question is, if they unavoidably retain an important kind of discretion, do they have the standing to exercise the discretion in a representative capacity? And there, the fact that they are in a public-private partnership do not, does not, in my view, change the fact that these actors are organizations with an independent existence, with independent goals, with independent pressures, and therefore unavoidably end up acting for reasons and purposes that are non-public, should have no standing from the perspective of a democratic government. So um, that issue would, would remain. Okay. So there's a question which I'm going to ask you in a minute about uh, inequality from Jane Thomas. Uh, but just so Kate knows, I'm going to then come back to Kate and ask her to give any concluding thoughts and ask you, ask you Chiara, her, her last question before I thank everyone and wrap up. So Jane has a question about inequality and whether, in, whether, um, uh, whether what, you're, what you described, and Jane, forgive me again if I, if I, if I uh, paraphrase this, this uh, excessively, but I think what Jane is asking is, um, are privatization and some of the uh, delegitimizing effects of philanthropy simply symptoms of, of inequality? And is inequality not, as it were, the prior question? So yes or no, in the sense, I think, um, right, if, so, so yes or no, in the sense, um, when is philanthropy dominating? Well, when an individual, in order to enjoy the, the conditions of human freedom, has to depend on the discretionary will of another. So, um, in that sense, it's true that perhaps in a world where everyone was so rich, you know, that then uh, in that case, uh, you know, if someone has just a little bit more, um, that might not, uh, you know, um, still generate a condition of domination. But in the world where we live, uh, it's, it's not so much necessarily the large inequalities, right, but the fact that uh, the state makes the condition of 
human freedom, however precisely understood, and also free and equal citizenship dependent on me having to get that from another private person who can withdraw, right, that, that I help at discretion. Uh, so, so partly this problem of donation is independent of inequalities, but I think gross inequalities make it much, much uh, worse. And also, again, I think our level of inequality is a symptom of and, and a statement to the fact that the background distribution of property is unjust in our world, at least in my view, which is not my only view, but the view I think also of many uh, political theories and philosophers is that justice requires that inequalities be contained within certain range. And then there is, of course, wide disagreement what that range is, but we are beyond you know, that permissible range. And so that um, inequality determines the fact that the distribution of property may not be just, and that as again, as important implication for how we should think about the philanthropic act. Okay, okay. As a reparative act, rather. Thank you, thank you. Um, I hope I've done justice to the questions. I hope I've done justice to the questions I can see uh, on my screen. Um, um, Kate, uh, I would love to hear a couple of concluding words and your final question. Uh, we have about four four minutes. Go read the book. Uh, but <laughs> I think two two kind of you know further food for thought things that come out of these questions for me. First, thinking about Jonathan and Subi's question, I think you know a kind of interesting thing to think about in in our kind of non-ideal scenario how to kind of disperse uh, democratic control and you know give the different ways in which we might give people more control over administrative and private agencies so Kiara in the book uh, nicely outlines these kind of three think of them as control mechanisms a kind of top down and also more bottom up democratic participatory and then also seeing administrative agencies as playing these kind of fiduciary roles and one thing I wonder based on Jonathan's question is whether in the kind of short term we might want organizations some of which play this more bottom up role he mentioned kind of representing the community or maybe volunteering in one's community maybe other you know for other kinds of organizations or administrative functions more of a top down at least in the near term kind of approach might be helpful um, and then a second kind of big theme is this theme of the independent purposiveness of, you know, private actors, which, you know, as Kiara has stressed, kind of allows civil society to be civil society, us to kind of, you know, pursue the ends that we discover for ourselves. And a thing that I wonder, you know, which is raised by the book is, you know, do we have kind of political grounds for constraining the purposiveness of particularly you know, economic organizations such that maybe they could uh, better fulfill the role of legitimate private actors. So maybe, you know, the kind of, you know, the profit motive keeps coming up, you know, perhaps the problem is that private, you know, the economy is meant to kind of, you know, allow society to reproduce itself. It's not meant to allow people to get really, really rich. But the problem is that we've kind of set up the economy to allow profit to kind of downplay these other motives that the economy is good for. So I'm wondering if some kind of redesign and the kind of purposes that civil society and the economy could have would at least increase legitimacy in the short term. Great. Chiara, final minute, final thoughts. Yes, yeah, so uh, I mean, two very general um, thoughts. One, building precisely on when Kate left, is is that, however, I I, I, I want to emphasize that this is not a book of uh, you know necessarily of condemnation of the um, profit motive, not because maybe the profit motive need not to be condemned but because he tried hard not to build an argument about privatization that is too focused on moralized assessment about the goodness or badness of particular private actors' motives. So in a certain way, the book wants to say, you know, even if people are well-intentioned, the problem still remains, um, which again, it's not necessarily a thumbs up for profit motive, uh, but it's, and finally, one thing, Privatization, I think it's a symptom of also a problem about political institutions. And so hopefully the book diagnoses 
of the problem of privatization, you know, it's also a way, and I try to do that in the book, to dialectically build a more positive uh, view of political, institu- of political institution and more democratized bureaucracy, as I call it. Uh, but thank you very much Perfect. for the questions and the engagement. Uh, um, it was uh, truly a thrill to be here. Perfect. So um, it just remains for me to uh, thank um, uh, Chiara, obviously, congratulate her on her book, to thank my colleague Kate for uh, amazing uh, questions, to thank you for giving up an hour of your lives wherever in the world you are. Um, uh, I'm not going to attempt to, to summarise our conversation, but I will say one thing, which is the thing I love about this book is it shifts our conversation about legitimacy away from outcomes um, uh, and and uh, uh, to, to, towards a much subtler um, uh, basis on which to judge um, the, the justice. Um, so we have to stop talking about effectiveness and efficiency and talk about something much more important, which is this complex um, combined issue of legitimacy. So Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chiara. Thank you, Kate. Thank you to my colleagues at the Marshall Institute and the LSE for putting on this event. Goodbye, everyone.